as Sarah said, my name is Kat. Um, I live in King's Cross, Central London. Um, my owner is actually my flatmate. She's had the joy of sharing a house with me for the last four years. It's been a lot of fun. Um, I work for a church that started in King's Cross about four years ago. Uh, there's a couple called Pete and B Hughes who lead the church there. Um, so we've been going since February 2010. It's been an absolute roller coaster of a ride since we started. There's been many joys. Um, as well as many challenges along the way. And I could, it's safe to say it's absolutely taken over my life. Um, it's completely dominated my life, but um, it's also had lots of joys for me. Um, I met my now fiance there, and we got engaged a couple of weeks ago. Um, thank you. <laughs> I threatened to bring him here today, um, but I think the prospect of hundreds of women in one room is slightly terrifying for him. Um, so I spared him that particular joy. Um, but it's a real joy to be with you here today. Thank you so much for having me. I know none of you actually invited me, but Sarah did, so thanks to Sarah for inviting um, me. But I just wanted to say, before I kick off, for those of you thinking, you know, that's all very well, but who on earth is this young, slightly scruffy whippersnapper that Sarah has got up at the front of this conference. Um, well, I should probably explain two things. I just explained them to Sally at the back. Firstly, I inherited my father's slightly chubby cheeks. I think I'm stuck with them for life. They've, they've gone down a lot with age. Um, but I think that kind of leads people to believe I'm a little bit younger than I am. So, so that no one's guessing throughout the day, 28, let it be said, there you go. Um, uh, but secondly, I just wanted to acknowledge, I'm aware that the women in this room, collectively, as well as kind of on their own, probably have are streets ahead of me in terms of wisdom, in terms of your walks with God and what you know of the Lord already. And so I really am humbled to be here. And I was as shocked as you were um, when Sarah invited me um, to come and speak here. And if it all goes horribly wrong, then let's blame Sarah. We'll send a letter of complaint to her at the end. I'll write one too. We can all get up going on it together. Um, but seriously, thank you for having me. Um, when I met with Sarah at the start of the year to chat through um, the vision of Philia, it's amazing to hear about the vision of these conferences. Um, and in particular, her vision for this conference, she came to me actually with a specific request of what she'd like me to speak on today. Um, a particular passage of scripture that she felt God lay on her heart for today, um, which we're going to look at in a minute together, is John chapter 4, where Jesus encounters this Samaritan woman at the well. Many of you will be familiar with it. Um, but I was actually really delighted that she asked me um, to speak on that topic. A, because it meant I didn't have to have the torturous process of thinking, oh, what earth do I speak on to these women that I've never even met before? Um, but more than that, I think because at the heart of this passage is a topic that I'm deeply, deeply passionate about and committed to exploring in my own life. Um, and that's this topic of love as deep as the ocean, um, or understanding, if you like, the depth of God's love for us. Um, so before we read the passage together, I just wanted to mention this, that when I came to sit down and read the passage through, um, when I was preparing what I wanted to say, I was reminded of this discipline a good friend has taught me about not reading passages of scripture in isolation. Um, it's not just lifting them out of wherever you come to them in the Bible, but reading about what's gone before and what's gone after. That will be a discipline that I'm sure many of you are familiar with in your own lives. Um, we did a series recently on the parables of Jesus uh, back at our church in King's Cross. And one of the things that we learned then is that when you come across Jesus telling a parable, he's not just interrupting the action of what's going on then and there for some sort of random story time with his disciples, um, but he's providing a commentary on the action, on what's happening then and there in the moment. 
So, all that to say, when I came to read John chapter 4, I thought, I need to follow the discipline, I'm going to read John chapter 3, I'm going to read John chapter 5 as well. And I'm really pleased that I did, because when I read John chapter 3, there was this one verse in particular, right at the end, right before this encounter with Jesus, the woman at the well. Um, this one verse that just hit me between the eyes. I don't know if you've ever had that when you're just reading something from scripture, and it's like one verse just like jumps out of you from the page. Um, and I really felt God speak to me through it. So, so that you know, the context of this verse is that some of um, John the Baptist's disciples are getting their knickers in a bit of a twist, um, because suddenly Jesus and his disciples arrived on the scene and they've started baptizing people. And so John the Baptist's disciples sort of start approaching him and saying, is this okay? We're not sure this is fine. This seems very untoward to us. And John the Baptist is just completely chilled out about the whole thing. Um, and he basically reassures them that everything is as it should be. And he says this beautiful thing that some of you will be familiar with. And he says this, <clears throat> no, this is as it should be. He must become greater. I must become less. And he talks about how it's his joy for that to be the case. And then the Apostle John, who's writing about all this happening, goes on to the right that through Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, all will know the love of the Father. And this is the verse that captured me that I wanted to read to you. He says this, The one that God sent speaks God's words, and don't think he rations out the Spirit in bits and pieces. The Father loves the Son extravagantly. He turns everything over to him so he could give it away, a lavish distribution of gifts. That is why whoever accepts and trusts the Son gets in on everything, life, complete and forever. And that is also why the person who avoids and distrusts the Son is in the dark and doesn't see life. All he experiences of God is darkness, and angry darkness at that. Now, for those of you that have been trying to follow along and saying, it doesn't say that, it's heresy. Um, I was reading from the message translation. Don't worry, I'll be back to the NIV in a minute. Um, but I wanted to read it from that version because I love how it says, don't think he rations out the spirit in bits and pieces. The NIV puts it like this, for God gives the spirit without limit. And my sense was when I read that verse that perhaps there are people that have come here in this room today who feel as though their experience of God has been somewhat rationed. That maybe you feel as though you've experienced and encountered God's love in bits and pieces, but if you were really honest, words like lavish, extravagant, maybe don't come close to your experience of God's love. And I really felt as I read that verse um, that if that's you, that God was longing to pour out his spirit again without limit, to refresh and restore you, as the others were saying earlier, and to bring you to this place of experiencing that fullness of life, life complete and forever, as John put it. Um, for others, I actually felt drawn to that, those verses about a lavish distribution of gifts, that the Spirit wants to come and empower and envision you again. Um, but beyond that, um, I actually felt drawn to kind of the latter half of those verses in a funny sort of way, and I felt this nudging um, about some of the words in those verses, which I think provide a bit of a clue as to what, why sometimes we find it hard to receive all the love that the Father has for us. Um, this is what John writes, I'll just read it again. That whoever accepts and trusts the Son gets in on everything, life complete and forever. But the person who avoids and distrusts the Son is in the dark, and their experience of God is darkness, and an angry darkness at that. And um, I want to talk a little bit about that verse as we come in to talk about the woman at the well. 
Um, but before I do, let me just say this quick caveat. Um, because what I want to say is this. I absolutely believe that there are times in our lives when God allows us to go through sort of desert-like experiences in our relationship with him. Um, that's something that St. John of the Cross and some of the other mystics talked about as the dark night of the soul, literally describing the sense of darkness in our relationship with God. And those times, um, we're, encounter we're encountering something of this darkness in our relationship with God, perhaps some sort of sense of distance, um, but it isn't because of any sin, it's not because of any obstacle on our part, but because somehow, for whatever reason, God is allowing us to experience something of that darkness to deepen our trust in him. And my understanding of this is very limited. I feel like I've had sort of moments of those times in my own walk um, with Jesus, and it's really hard to understand them whilst you're in them. But I do believe that they are valuable and precious times and things not to feel condemned about. And I actually think they'd probably some, be something that would be well worth us talking about more amongst our friends um, and in our churches. But helpfully, I'm not going to talk about that um, today um, because I don't think that's what John's saying here. Um, I think the kind of darkness that John is talking about here comes from when we avoid Jesus. Um, and as I said, I think John goes on to demonstrate how this truth can play out in a person's life by describing this encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. So without further ado, why don't we read that together now? So you want to turn to John chapter 4, if you've got a Bible. We're going to read from verse 1 together. It says this. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptising more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus he baptised, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You've nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. 
God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But nobody asked, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Um, I absolutely love that passage. It's one of my total favourites, and I feel like I could probably preach about 20 different sermons on it. Don't worry, I'm not going to. I'm just going to give you the one. Um, but I think when you read that passage in light of what, what John has just said in chapter 3, that the person who avoids and distrusts the sun is in the dark, and their experience of God is darkness, and an angry darkness at that, you begin to see something really obvious. That this woman is riddled in avoidance tactics. And John gives us a clue about this really early on in this passage um, by including this tiny little detail, which is the sort of detail that we read it and we completely skim over it. And so he talks about the time of day that this encounter took place. He says it was about noon. And we're thinking, oh, that's nice. John's painting a picture. It was a lovely sunny day in the Cotswolds, something along those lines. That's not what John is getting at here, because in the context of first century Israel, nobody went to draw water from a well at noon. Um, I was trying to get my head around this, and I think in my own embarrassingly vain way, I began to understand and how I can sort of relate to why this is the case. Um, I'm an absolute sucker for a bit of summer sun. Um, I'm an obsessive tanner. I love to have a tan at any point. It's my belief that everybody looks better when they have a tan. Some of you will widely disagree with me, that's fine. Um, but I also like to think that I've got tanning down to a fine art. So when I go on holiday, I kind of position myself on a sun lounger, um, face the sun, and as the sun moves around throughout the day, I kind of move my lounger to sort of track the sun as it goes to make sure I can get maximum exposure and the best possible tan I can get. I'm quite a competitive tanner too, I should tell you that. Um, but even I know, because my mother brought me up well, that when it hits midday, it hits the heat of the day, you get yourself out of the sun. So memories of me as a child on holiday, it would hit midday, and mum would be like, Catherine, come in, come in, out the sun, out the sun, you're going to burn, you're going to burn. So you'd run in at midday, you'd have lunch, you'd probably have a bit of a snooze after lunch, and then you'd head back out into the sun after the heat of the day had passed. So in my mind, the thought of anybody doing any sort of physical work in the heat of the day, I can understand that that would be pretty difficult to do. But perhaps less familiar to me is this idea that when women went to collect water from these wells for their households, they travelled in packs. And this wasn't because this was kind of the first century equivalent of women going to the loo in pairs. Um, <laughs> although, maybe. Um, but it was really because to make that journey alone as a woman left you extremely vulnerable and open to attack. So why then, in the heat of the day, by herself, does this woman come to the well to draw water? Because she doesn't want anybody to see her. And we might miss that when we read the text, but John's point is deliberate. This woman is hiding from her community. So you can imagine her fear when she arrives at the well and she sees a man sitting by the well. Nobody else is around, and she's probably thinking, oh, should I turn back? There's this man here, I'm vulnerable, I'm by myself, I've got nobody else with me. 
she's just walked in the heat of the day as well, and she's thinking, oh, I've got to have something to drink, otherwise I'm going to keel over on the way home. <coughs> so she approaches the well, she approaches Jesus, and he just asks her this question, will you give me a drink? And she is completely shocked that he has spoken to her, let alone asked her to help him out with something, because he's a Jew and she's a Samaritan. And we read in the text, John mentions it, that there's this long-standing, deep, racist hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. And we know, because we've read the rest of the story, we've read the rest of the book, we've read about loads of encounters that Jesus has had with people, that we read about uh, loads of different ones throughout the Gospels, but we know that the kind of man Jesus is, is a man who loves to break down social divides, that he loves making friends with people who are considered unclean or considered outcasts in some sort of way, that he was absolutely radical in the way that he treated women in a patriarchal society. You know, in fact, later on, the Apostle Paul would say that in Christ, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave, free, male, female. But for the woman, she didn't know this. All she had to go on was her previous experience of Jewish men. And we don't know what her previous experience was, but I'm guessing it wasn't that pretty. So it's not surprising that her response is this, what are you talking about? You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? And Jesus just responds by simply saying this to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If you knew. If you knew who I was. If you knew that I was a kind, a loving, gracious God, that I'm for you, I'm not against you, that my heart's to accept you, not to reject you, then maybe you would come to me for life. And I think it's at this point in the uh, conversation, this is how I read it anyway, that it's when Jesus begins to reveal something of who he really is to her and what he's actually like, something of his kindness and his grace and his acceptance, that she starts acting quite shifty. And, and she begins to say these seemingly quite random things that, again, when we read them, we sort of skim over them. We think, what's that about? So she says things like this. Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? And then later on she says, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. She's giving Jesus this spiel about the biblical history of the well. And then she's trying to draw him into some sort of theological argument about where the right place to worship is. You know, what is that about? You know, there are tons and tons of commentaries written on this passage, and they're well worth a look. Um, but one of the things, one of the ones I read that I loved the most, and Sarah actually put me onto, is by a theologian called Kenneth Bailey, who's written a fantastic book on Jesus and the Middle East. Um, and he suggests this is what's going on, and I think it's absolutely brilliant. He says this, she's hiding behind religion. She's hiding behind religion. She's beginning to sense something of who Jesus is, that there's something special, different, significant about him, and that he's interested in her. And he wants to talk with her, and he wants to know her, and she's frightened. She's thinking, I kind of like who this guy is and what he's like, and I want him to think well of me. I want him to like me. I don't want him to see the real me. Because if he saw the real me, and he knew what was really going on in my life, then maybe he'd want nothing to do with me anymore. So she tries to pull the wool over his eyes by showing off what a good religious girl she is. <coughs> 
And she comes to him and she says, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to come back here again. And I think when I read that in the past, I've kind of read it in this lovely sort of earnest, gentle voice. It's like, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to come back here again. Um, but I think kind of reading it with that idea that she's hiding behind this religion, I've started to read that as like, quick, get me out of here. Give me the water whilst you can before you know anything more about me and then I can get out of here and you won't have to see me ever again. She wants to run and hide. And at this point, when we're reading the story, we don't know why, but she does, and Jesus does. And in the way that I think only Jesus can, so kindly, so graciously, so gently, he says something that's completely out of left field, but in doing so, he's beginning to call her out of this place of hiding. He says to her, go, call your husband, and come back. And then we just read it, but this unfolds, this back and forth between the two of them where this woman's story unravels. And we see what Jesus has seen all along, why she's been hiding. She's had a string of failed marriages. She's currently having an affair with somebody else. And she's hated because of it. Her reputation is ruined. She's been rejected by her community. That's why she comes in the middle of the day. She's hiding from her community. Terrified that Jesus is going to reject her too, so she hides behind religion. You know, it's like John says: the person who avoids and distrusts the sun is in the dark, and their experience of God is darkness. The woman's in hiding because all she has known up to this point is rejection and judgment, and she fears that this is what Jesus is going to leave her with too: anger, judgment, condemnation. Do you know, it has always been like this. If you go right back to the beginning, to the beginning of the story of scripture, back to Genesis, right back in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve mess up. They realize they've made a mistake. They immediately feel shame, and what do they do? They hide, yeah, they hide. And there's this beautiful, most poignant moment. I, it's one of those moments in the Bible where I sort of brings a tear to my eye when I sort of come to read it, where you just hear God's voice calling out to them in the garden. Where are you? Imagine God feeling absolutely gutted. Where are you? Where are you hiding? You know, for some of us today, we need to hear again that the Father gives the Spirit without, the, without limit, that the Spirit of God is not rationed out in bits and pieces, that God's love for us is not rationed out in bits and pieces. And for some of us, maybe it's just busyness, it's life circumstances, we've got 101 things to do every day and not enough time to do them in. And it's those circumstances that lead us to a place where we feel a bit disconnected from God, we feel dry, and we've come here today and we know that we just need to receive, we need to be filled afresh with his love today. For others though, maybe we feel like all we're allowed, all we're worthy of, is rations. And if we were to describe our experience of God, might not describe it like this all the time, but maybe at times we describe it like darkness, an angry darkness at that at times. You know, I said this when I began, I think there are times in our lives when, when there can be different reasons for experiencing that sense of distance from God. They're not always bad. But for some of us, maybe we know deep down that we're experiencing something of a sense of darkness in our relationship with God because we've been avoiding Jesus in some way. Um, and if you resonate with that at all, I want to ask two questions. And the first one is this, where are you hiding? Where are you? The question right back in the beginning. You know, maybe like the woman, you've been avoiding 
community. He's been avoiding good friends. Um, you know, for me, one of the ways I relate to this the most is how I behave when I feel low or upset or down about something in my life. I'm a pretty emotionally wired person. Iona will be able to tell you that from living with me. I go through all sorts of ups and downs, sometimes just in one day. Um, I don't know how many of you have ever done the Myers-Briggs personality test. Some of you will have done. Um, there's this one category that's sort of thinking versus feeling and sort of how balanced you are between the two things. I'm off the Richter scale feeling. Thinking doesn't even come close into it. I'm like 98% feeling or something like that. Um, so one of the things that goes with that is that I feel things really intensely. So when I feel happy, I feel over the moon and bouncing off the walls. And when I feel low, I feel really low. I get really, really down. And one of the things that I've noticed is that when I feel low, or I feel anxious about something, or I feel shame about something, I start to hide from those around me. And sometimes, literally, I have been known on some occasions to literally avoid certain people. I don't want to bump into them. I don't want them to see me in that state. Sometimes I just withdraw slightly in a relationship, so I just see someone maybe a little bit less than I normally would. Sometimes I'm there in body, I'm present, but I'm not sharing anything of my heart with those people. You know, I just want to ask the question, how about you? Is there anybody in your life at the moment that you're hiding from? That maybe you've withdrawn from a little bit? And have you ever stopped to ask the question, why? Maybe for others, you're hiding behind religion. You can give all the right answers. You turn up to church every Sunday. You serve the church regularly. You give money to those stuck in poverty. And you have a quiet time once a day where you meet with God. But deep down, you know there's parts of your heart that the Lord hasn't got hold of yet. That there's a distance somehow between you and him. Um, this is, again, definitely a big one for me. The whole idea of a quiet time, which I'm not knocking because I think it's amazing, has such tremendous value doing that discipline every day of setting aside time to read the Bible, to pray, those sorts of things. Um, but sometimes I can sit through half an hour of reading the Bible, saying a few prayers, and God doesn't have my heart. I've gone through the motions, but he doesn't have my heart. Um, I was at a conference back in London, I think it was two weeks ago now, um, run by a church called HDB, some of you will have heard of it, it's a big church in central London, um, run by a man called Nicky Gumbel, and he was inter interviewing um, this Catholic uh, Benedictine monk, um, who is my new hero, he's called Brother Luigi, and he's my absolute inspiration, um, but he was interviewing this wonderful, holy man who just sort of radiated the love of God out of his face. I don't even know how it happened, but it just shone with God's love. And he was interviewing him about his prayer life, asking him about how he prays. And I was thinking, yeah, okay, I'm getting ready for all the kind of secrets for how to develop a really good prayer life. And Nicky Gumbel started with this question. He just said to him, you know, a lot of people feel like they have to almost get their house in order, that they have to feel like they've got to get everything together before they approach God in, in prayer. Um, maybe in these, one of these sort of quiet times, and he said, you know, can you just comment on that? What's your experience of when you come to pray? What do you do first? And this amazing holy man just responded by saying, no, I start most of my prayers with a time of complaining. <laughs> he basically just said he starts most prayer times by saying, Lord, I feel like this is a total waste of time. I'm not getting anything out of this. I feel really discouraged. And then he just pours out before God everything that's going on in his and he talks about how if he feels angry, he brings his anger to God. He'll say, God, I feel really angry about this. If he feels 
sad, God, I feel sad about this. If you feel disappointed, God, I feel disappointed about this. Um, and he'll just pour out whatever it is that's going on in his heart. You know, I think for some of us, um, we only think that there's certain parts of ourselves that are acceptable to bring before God. I've definitely been on a journey of this. Anger was a big one for me. I felt like anger was totally unacceptable. I was brought up to think anger is not Christian. Um, so I really struggled to tell God when I was angry. But slowly I've been getting into this rhythm, and even more so since that hearing Brother Luigi talk about that, um, that we can bring all of these things to God, that he loves us in our strength um, as well as in our weakness. Um, Brother Luigi actually put it like this. I wanted to read you what he said, because it's far better than what I will. He said, God's presence is about feeling love and feeling his tenderness. Everything quietens down, and what remains is a feeling of being with him just as I am with my poverty and my brokenness and my difficulties, but being loved by him. Um, last week, last Sunday, I was speaking at a church in Poole. Um, it was the first time I'd ever been there, and it was a new wine celebration, for those of you that are familiar with new wine, um, for kind of local churches around that area together. Um, and it was the first time I'd done anything like that, so I was really nervous about it, and I woke up that morning, and I felt really low. And when I woke up, I felt really low, and I thought, Oh no, I'm speaking at new wine. I feel low, I can't feel low. I've got, to, I've got to perk myself up, I've got to get myself into a good place. And I came to spend time with God and I was just sort of saying, God help me, you know, I need, to, I need to get through this feeling of being low so I can get to this place of strength and feeling great and on top form for these people later. And I just felt God say to me, you know, you're doing it again. You can come to me feeling low. I don't, I don't need you to feel great. I don't need you to be bouncing off the top of the walls. I love you in your weakness. I love you in your weakness as well as in your strength. And you don't need to sort yourself out for me or get yourself in order in, in order to be acceptable and to be useful to me. So are you hiding anywhere? Where are you hiding? Away from community, behind religion maybe. And secondly, and perhaps the most important question, the one that Jesus goes for with the woman at the well, as we've just seen, is this. Why are you hiding? <coughs> And I wonder this, if you're anything like the woman, if you're anything like me, or probably like millions of others across the globe, could it be that you're hiding for two reasons? One, you feel shame about something. And two, you've misunderstood what Jesus is like. Um, for some of us, shame is a really big deal, and it took its roots a long time ago. And shame can come from big, serious life events, from things that should never have happened to us. And this is a, a slightly sort of heavy example, but I think it's really true that feelings of intense shame are often suffered by those that have been abused in any sort of way. Um, but shame can also come from things that we've done wrong, however big or however small, but they've been left unresolved, they've been left unshared, and they haven't been met with the forgiveness that we've needed for them. Um, at the back end of last year, I was having some counselling um, for a number of issues that I've been finding really difficult in my life that I just felt like I couldn't get through by myself and I needed someone to help me and to sort of shed some light on them. So um, I started sort of seeing this counsellor and in one of the sessions that I had, um, one of the things that happened was that I was describing to my counsellor this fear I have at times that can be absolutely crippling of disappointing people, of letting other people down. And I was talking to her a little bit about how that plays out sometimes. Um, and I was saying that, you know, one of the things is 
is that I can sometimes imagine scenarios in my head of people saying things like, oh, do you know, it's just such a shame that Kath didn't do this. Or, oh, it's such a shame that Kath didn't just quite do it like that. Or, it's such a shame that Kath isn't a bit more like this, or a little bit less like that. I almost sort of play out some of those scenarios um, in my head. And my counsellor, in the annoying way that only a counsellor can do, starts to sort of do the, mm, mm, I hear what you're saying. Um, what I'm hearing is this. And sort of started reflecting back to me what I was saying to her. And then she asked this question, which must have come just from some sort of hunch. She said, can I just ask, um, have you ever experienced someone saying that to you before? That they were ashamed of you? Um, and when she said it, I was kind of annoyed, or kind of stupid question. And when she said it, this one thing immediately sprung into my mind. And it was so small, so stupid, that I thought, oh, that's embarrassing, I'm definitely not going to say that. Um, it was from years and years ago. Um, and I, something, something must have changed in my face. And so immediately she sort of pounced, in, again, that annoying way that only a counsellor can do. And she's like, mm, I've noticed your body language is that this moment. I was like, oh, thought I'd slip that one past you. Um, apparently I hadn't. And she said, you know, is there anything in particular you're thinking about? Uh, so I said, well, got this one thing that's just come into my head, but it's honestly, it's really small. I'm pretty sure it's got nothing to do with this. And she said, well, you know, why didn't you try it? Why didn't you just tell me? <laughs> oh, well, here we go. So I was like, fine, I'll tell you. It's nothing to do with it, but I'll tell you anyway. So I started describing this story to her, this moment that had sort of come into my head. And I basically told her about how way back in time when I was in primary school, I was about eight or nine at the time, um, I got in trouble for bullying at school. And what happened was, um, I, lived in the, uh, I didn't live there, thankfully. Um, I went to school in this old school building that's sort of slightly Dickensian. It was like an old house. And they didn't have room for all of the uh, girls in my class to hang their coats in one cloakroom. So five of us that were deemed really responsible um, got to have our own private cloakroom, which was like this great honour, somewhere separate to hang our coats. Um, so we'd been hanging our coats, these, the five of us in this room, and we kept getting in trouble for leaving the light on in that room. So in our immaturity, we set up this rule which was like, right, next person to leave the light on has to kiss the floor. And um, I don't, goodness knows where that came from, but we thought it was a good idea at the time, so we came up with this rule, next person to leave the light on needs to kiss the floor. Um, so the next day, this one girl <coughs> of five left, left the light on, and we were like, you gotta kiss the floor, you gotta kiss the floor. We made this poor girl kiss the she was absolutely devastated and went home. I thought nothing more of it. That's kind of how horrible sometimes eight and nine-year-old girls are. Um, didn't think much more of it until I came back to school the next day and I was called into the headmistress's office. And she sat me down and she told me off for bullying. And she said, um, we've called your parents and we've spoken to them about this. Um, and what I want you to do now is I want you to come and sit outside my office and I want you to write down why we don't make people you would have thought it was obvious, it apparently wasn't obvious to me, so I had to write um, these lines about why it was unkind to make somebody kiss the floor. Um, and I did that, and I sort of sat outside her office writing these lines, and all my friends walked past me on the way out to lunch to play in the playground, and I was sat there with my head down, and I felt really embarrassed. Um, but that was, that was okay, I, but what I was really dreading was going home, what my parents were going to say. So my mum came and picked me up, we were in the car, and... Um, I can't even really remember telling my mum because she was a bit of a soft touch, so I think I told her and she was like, oh, not a very nice thing to do, don't do it again. 
Um, so she was pretty chilled out about the whole thing. But I got home and I remember thinking, what's dad going to say? And I don't know what your relationship with your dad was like, but mine was like, it's when you were in real trouble, that was when dad got called in. And he didn't want to be around when that happened. So I was kind of slightly quaking in my boots anyway. Um, and I, was, I waited for a couple of hours. My dad came home from work. And I, I remember vividly to this day, I was sitting in this room. My dad came in, he flung the door open, he took one look at me. He just said to me, Catherine, I'm utterly ashamed of you. And then he walked out the door, slammed the door. Um, I didn't see him the rest of the evening. The next morning, he told me he wanted me to write a letter of apology for the girl. So I wrote a letter of apology for the girl and put it in the post. And then we never talked about it ever again after that. Um, what's crazy about the whole thing is that a couple of years later, I was awarded um, this prize at the school speech day called the Service to the School Award, which is basically like the award for the biggest goody two-shoes suck-up that there is out there. Um, and I remember, but I remember thinking at the time, oh, does this mean they've forgotten now what I did? And then even more crazy than that, 10 years later or something, I was in the same school, I was in sixth form, went the whole way through, um, and I was made head girl, which again is like another step up for the biggest goody two-shoes suck-up that there is out there. And, and I remember thinking in sixth form, 10 years later, does this mean they've forgotten now about what I did when I was eight or nine? You know, my dad um, was an absolutely wonderful man and father, and him sort of telling me that he was ashamed of me was probably a really clumsy use of words. He probably had a really rubbish day at work or whatever, and he probably never thought anything more of it. But as a child, that lack of forgiveness, that lack of embrace and of acceptance and his withdrawal from me in that moment did two things. It left me with these deep feelings of shame and it meant that I projected something of that experience of who, who my own dad was like onto God and began to believe this lie that if I messed up, if I did anything wrong, if I upset someone in some way, offended someone, I was going to be met with an angry darkness and a withdrawal from that person, and even worse, from God. You know, I, when I talked to my counsellor about this, I was like, but, you know, I you know, feel sort of quite choked up talking about it now, because it, I, it's really stirred some things for me. But at the time, I was like, but it can't be anything to do with that. She was like, do you know what? It absolutely could. It absolutely could, from the smallest of things. Um, you know, at that time, that shame warped my picture of who God is. And at times, it's really caused me to hide from him and made it difficult for me to receive his love, to feel worthy to receive his love. You know, that's just part of my story. I took a long time to say that. I'm sorry, it's very therapeutic for me, even if it wasn't for the rest of you. Um, <laughs> um, I'll pay you later. Um, you know, that's part of my story. It will be different for everybody in the room. You know, some of you, maybe this isn't even an issue, but for some, I want to ask you, what is it in your life that you feel most ashamed of? And are there any areas in your life that you're hiding from God? You're hiding any of those areas away from God at the moment. You know, the truth is that the God we worship is a perfect Father who is ready to forgive us, to embrace us, to accept us again, 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 again. He's the God who bore our shame on the cross so that we didn't have to experience it and so that we no longer have to hide. He is a loving Father who through Jesus and by the Spirit wants to pour out his love into our hearts without any sense of limit or rationing. 
know, like I said earlier, maybe your experience of God is that you feel as though you get to experience his love and his presence maybe in bits and pieces, but you're longing for more. And I definitely put myself in that category. And my belief is that there is more available to us. There is more on the table for us, even today. That today, in this moment, he's calling out to us from the most broken, wounded parts of us that stay in hiding. Where are you? Because he wants to find us in those places. He wants to restore to us that life that John talks about, complete and forever. And he wants us to bring the whole of our lives before him, so that into us he can pour out his spirit without limit and lavish his love on us once again. Um, thank you for listening this morning. I think we're going to have some coffee now. Is that right? Um, we'll be back later to look a little bit more at the Women of the World. I think it's coffee now and then in the seminars, but Sarah will be saying more about that, I think. Thank you so much.